0: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have uh, Craig Shimizaki, PhD and CEO of Moleculara. It's uh, like molecule with an R-A at the end, moleculara.com. So, Craig, thanks for coming.
1: Nice to be here, Richard.
0: Yeah. So tell me about Moleculara. What's the premise of the company? Yeah, Moleculara
1: is a, uh autoimmune-based uh, neuropsychiatric disorder a clinical diagnostic company. Our business model is that we uh, receive clinical specimens, blood specimens, literally from around the world. And what we do is we identify the underlying etiology or the cause of things that uh, might lead to a diagnosis of uh, autism, ADD, ADHD, a couple of conditions called PANDAS, like the bear, an acronym for pediatric autoimmune condition. And then once they're diagnosed and identified as to uh, an underlying autoimmune target, then the treatments are changed from generally neuropsychiatric or um, psychotropic drugs to an immune modulator and or an anti-infective. And these patients get remarkably well. Some cases that have they've been uh, in having these disorders for decades, uh, and in many cases they're back to normal life. So it's uh, quite remarkable.
0: So what's the current um, standard of care? How do we treat a lot of these conditions now? And how new are the therapies that your test is able to diagnose eligibility for?
1: Yeah. So typically the standard of care for maybe what we'll call all of these behavioral disorders, like autism that falls into that and ADD, and then this condition called PANDAS, which is worth a little bit of an explanation. It's an acronym for Pediatric Autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorder associated with strep infection. And uh, typically, these patients or uh, kids mostly, but now we're testing adults, present to, let's say, a doctor or maybe in school they're having trouble with um, focus, concentration, um, ability to pay attention, uh, motor tics, vocal tics, uh, obsessive-compulsive disorders, sometimes very uh, mild to very radical. Typically, they'll go and be seen by a couple of physicians and probably end up with maybe a uh, um, either a neurological physician or a pediatric neurologist or pediatric psychiatrist. Ultimately, they'll end up on some form of psychotropic drug, whether it's mood-altering, whether it's uh, anti-anxiety, and generally they'll be treating symptoms without regard to what the underlying cause is, and that's pretty much there's about 60 million people in the U.S. are on um, some form of um, we'll call it a psychotropic drug. When a good portion—that's
0: yeah, a lot—that's too many is. that are that are walking around with their minds altered in a way that's not even going to fix them, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah. An interesting statistic there, Richard, is that uh, there have been more suicides or deaths due to
0: these psychotropic drugs than all of overdoses with heroin. That's crazy. Mm. Uh, so, what, All right. So what's the uh, alternative protocol that's come out? Where, where did it come from and how long has it been out? And then, you know, we'll go into more details.
1: Yeah. So my co-founder, Dr. Madeline Cunningham, is a professor at the University of Oklahoma. She had been researching uh, infectious diseases and then uh, a, a disease or a condition called Sydenham chorea, which was the neurologic manifestation of rheumatic fever, which was, well, you got a strep infection and your heart would be attacked by your own antibodies and they had to stay on an antibiotic for the rest of their life. So what, what um, she had discovered, along with Dr. Susan Sweeto at the National Institutes of Mental Health, was that uh, there was a subset of children who had sudden onset of obsessive compulsive disorder, and they were all preceded by a strep infection. And so, between the two of them, they had been working on this, uh, the research and the clinical studies, and identified that the, there were certain targets. In uh, di- this case, five different targets in the brain and the CNS that these antibodies were attacking that would cause and trigger these different type of neurological disorders, and that was the genesis of the basic research that led into uh, when we started the company, myself as a co-founder, uh, in Open the doors in 2013
0: and began taking clinical
1: specimens, literally now from all, around the world.
0: Huh. That's terrible. I didn't know that strep can cause the body to uh, attack itself in such a way as to cause neurological problems.
1: Yeah, that and that's really the sort of the the interesting thing about medicine, you know, the brain is the last frontier, but, you know, we don't think much of it when our antibodies attack our joints, we call it rheumatoid arthritis, or when it attacks maybe our pancreas, we call it uh, diabetes type 1, or it attacks our thyroid, we call it Hashimoto's, but it, it never really occurs to people that, that these antibodies can actually attack your brain, and When they do so, what do we call it? Well, maybe do we call it mental illness? Do we call it bad parenting? Do we call it behavioral disorders? And the fact is that these antibodies cross the blood-brain barrier and attack a portion of the brain that that, uh, controls cognitive dysfunction, behavioral disorders, uh, other types of symptoms, including movement disorders. And hence, then you begin seeing these clinical
0: manifestations. That's crazy. How does um, pandas type diseases relate to uh, autism or ADHD? Are they very similar in their mechanism or what have you learned from studying all of them? Yeah. So, you know, it's very interesting
1: because it's a challenge in medicine. Um, We give labels to things based upon uh, clusters of symptoms in, in, in the case of these different neurologic and behavioral disorders. So the definition of Tourette's, is that you have uh, movement disorders that are motor tics that have gone on for longer than a year. So if that happens, you then have, quote-unquote, Tourette's. Um, Obviously, ADD and and ADHD, if you have these anxieties and uncontrollable um, uh, different types of compulsions and things that would quantify it, you can be labeled with ADD. Same thing with autism, you know, different types of social behavioral disorders and other types of learning disabilities, but it doesn't speak to anything related to what's the underlying root cause, and that's where the problem is. So what's related to pandas and autism? Well, pandas actually is a medical model that is uh, an autoimmune infection-triggered condition that attacks the brain and then causes these types of neurologic and behavioral disorder or these symptoms. Autism, which is a spectrum, a portion of that, Now, not all of it, but a good portion of it is also contributed to or caused by this same type of underlying uh, basis or what we call etiology. However, they're all being treated very similarly for symptoms rather than the underlying etiology which once it's treated, we see some remarkable recoveries.
0: All right, so there's a subset of ADHD and autism that you can treat. So you've, ident- you've created a, a blood test where you can look for specific markers that would tell you if the type of autism or ADHD would is similar enough to PANDAS that you can treat it?
1: Exactly. In fact, uh, that that's precisely what we do. So there's five markers or five targets we look at to see if there's antibodies that are attacking these different types of parts of the brain, like dopamine receptors, lysoganglioside, tubulin, et cetera. And if they are and they correlate with a patient's set of symptoms, then what we find is that those symptoms um, are usually and typically associated with this autoimmune disorder, and they may come in with multiple diagnoses. They're any one of those, um, and they do respond remarkably well to anti-infectives, and this immune modulatory treatment.
0: Yeah, so what does the treatment do? Can you go into a little bit of detail? How does it work?
1: Yeah, so, and this is the area that uh, is probably what's caused a little bit of um, challenge in getting it fully adopted, but because patients become remarkably well, it's it's, uh, something that we see being, uh, being adopted in the medical community. They generally will treat once they identify that this is an autoimmune-triggered condition. They'll generally need to treat two or three different categories. So the way that that works is there's an infection that triggers your body to produce antibodies, and normally that's the way we we respond to viruses and different types of different diseases. But in many patients, these antibodies get misdirected or they're made so they recognize parts of the body, kind of like these other disorders I mentioned, and these antibodies are attacking the brain. And then the treatments then have to do with attacking or, or getting rid of or eradicating the infection. And typically what we find is these patients may have these infections, but they have no symptoms. Or they may have multiple infections, and they're subclinical. And so the, the first part of the treatment is to eradicate the stimulus to these antibodies. So it might be antibiotics. In some cases, it could be antiviral, antifungal, antiparasitic. And then generally, you'll see some um, rapid improvement. If not fully improved, then they'll move over to, we call these immune modulatory And that means things that will suppress, modulate, or touch the immune system, like steroids and things that will suppress the immune system, Uh, intravenous immunoglobulin, which is antibodies from a lot of other people, which will sort of give them a feedback inhibition, or even other things um, that will kill off the B cells. Um, And then we see that the combination of that plus some anti-inflammatories, because typically the immune system will cause an inflammation or will cause this type of inflammatory condition that affects the brain. Um, Between those two or three different treatments, um, we see the vast majority of these patients either improve or completely recover.
0: It seems tricky to uh, treat a condition like this because you don't want to just suppress the immune system and stop the antibodies from attacking, because like you said, there's infections that you may not even know about that are out there. And those could turn really bad, I guess, if you suppress the immune system. Yes. So, And, and you're exactly right. Um, what you do
1: see is when you do things like steroids, you reduce the inflammation and you do suppress the immune system a bit. But you look for, is it enough to reset the immune system or cause it to maybe function properly when they're off of it? And so typically those are um, treatments that are used uh, transiently. And um, they're not they're not long term, um, and typically they'll go to these other immune modulatory treatments. But uh, in acute phases, um, they do work. And then what they find is once the immune system is let's call it reset or fully um, recovered in a sense, that you find that uh, they generally can be off of all treatment and uh, including any of these psychotropic drugs.
0: So what's the, the order of treatment is what to treat the infections first and then the immune system, or, I mean, can you treat the immune system first or modulate it and then treat the infections, or it's going to be simultaneous?
1: Yeah, yeah. So some of the studies that we've seen and working with, we now have over 1,200 doctors who've ordered tests, and since we've opened, we've now tested over 7,600 patients um, and getting feedback, what we find is that, um They do respond no matter what you do, but the ones that recover and don't seem to regress um, are when they've eradicated the infection first. And typically, again, it's a little challenging because in many of these cases, patients don't have symptoms. So, for instance, you can have strep infection in any orifice of your body, and you may even be a carrier and not have symptoms, but the infection will still produce the antibodies. Um, or you can have other types of co-infections like mycoplasma and and Coxsackie virus. But when they treat the infection with an anti-infective, you usually see uh, a very abrupt uh, improvement. And then, secondly, treating the inflammatory condition and the immune system, and typically what you then see is these these, uh, sustainable types of recoveries.
0: So what percentage of uh ADHD or autism cases appear to fall into this regime that are treated this way?
1: I'm sorry, what was that question again?
0: Oh, what percentage of uh, autism or ADHD cases um appear to be treatable using your protocols?
1: So there have uh, been a number of uh papers that have been published one uh, particularly using our test as a screen to see uh, w- uh what percentage of about 82 case studies Uh, of autistic patients were autoimmune, and they found that about 60% were, and when they tested and then treated these patients with intravenous immunoglobulin, they found that our panel, which we call the Cunningham panel, uh, was the best predictor of those that would respond. And if you look at literature uh, of many of the other uh, portions where people are looking at immune dysfunction um there there is um ranges that people state somewhere between 50 to almost 80% of autism has something to do with some immune dysregulation um certainly there are other causes there's some genetic causes uh small portion but they they have found genetic uh reasons and then also metabolic and other things including gut dysbiosis um, but the question is, is it actually the root or is it a consequence of the immune dysfunction? whether me- the metabolic function or dysfunction occur after that or is this something that is related to it? But there's a fair hmm. portion that's been postulated uh, with literature that uh, these conditions uh, have to do with an immune dysfunction.
0: So are you focusing on this mechanism or does this make you want to look at autism, for instance, and try to find markers for all the ways in which it can manifest?
1: Yeah, uh, for us, it's really that our core competency as a company is that we are able to identify and target uh, autoimmune targets in the central nervous system, in the brain, and in, in other parts of the body that that affect movement and behavior and neurologic. So some of the areas we've been looking at are those in collateral, like uh, schizophrenia, chronic depression. In fact, what we're finding also is that in adults, a good portion of chronic fatigue syndrome has antibodies that are targeting the brain and that these same treatments, when applied to these adults, we see these same types of recoveries. It takes a little bit longer but we do see these same types of recoveries for uh, adults that have chronic fatigue, and we're working with some physicians who are actually running our tests before and after treatment and then also uh, working to publish some of these studies. So our our goal is to use the platform and use this infection-triggered autoimmune condition to find out what the spectrum of conditions this may apply to um, there's some thought that Parkinson, well, certainly Parkinson's now has, is known to have a trigger of an autoimmune dysfunction, possibly Alzheimer's. Uh, and so our, our goal is to look at these others in context with all these other targets that we have, um, have in our, our arsenal.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask you about other conditions. You know, I wonder, I mean, this is like, I'm just, you know, making this theory up, but do you think that if um, certain types of low-grade infections, or like you said, they, they show no symptoms, um, the body doesn't really respond to them appropriately because it doesn't see them as enough of a threat, but yet it, it produces antibodies that attack things they shouldn't attack, and maybe that's why these things take years to develop and why they're, it's so difficult to treat them. Maybe it's a, I mean, do you think that someone that suffers from chronic fatigue, it's because they've gotten a low-grade infection that they've had for months or years, and now that's leading to the, you know, to antibodies that's hacking their brain and central nervous system?
1: Yeah, and and we call that mechanism molecular mimicry, hence the name of molecular labs, is that um, if you think about this biologically, you know, the 20 letters of the protein alphabet, at some point, whether it's a bacteria versus an organ in your body versus something, there's going to be a string of letters that are going to be identical to each other. And normally your body tells not to make antibodies against that portion because your body, your immune system screens the difference between self and non-self. But in some patients, uh, what happens is these antibodies and these B cells uh, get produced. And once they're produced, they start attacking these parts of the body. And yes... um, this is a mechanism. Um, if you think about chronic fatigue, for instance, typically most of these people were very healthy, very athletic, and they had some type of an infection. They remember getting sick or something, and they hadn't recovered. Um, but what what we find is not only are they attacking the parts of the brain, which they end up with this kind of what they call brain fog, but we've also seen in some of our other studies, in which we don't have that as a commercial test yet, um, is that they're attacking parts of the heart, and uh, the heart then, which one becomes once it becomes attacked, can cause the fatigue because you get they get tired. You know, a little bit of exercise, they you know they they're they're fatigued. Um, so this cross reactivity to different parts of the body is this molecular mimicry mechanism and this is principally what we look at.
0: So why, you know, for people with this problem why wouldn't, you know, if they get sick with something else and then they take antibiotics broad spectrum, why wouldn't that knock out these uh lower level infections? They typically do.
1: And so we're talking really about, you know, these there a percentage of the population that you know get chronic fatigue that get autism that have pandas and pans um normally this is how things should work you know you have a healthy immune system your body can tell the difference between you and the invading organism and it doesn't make antibodies and then you take an antibiotic it gets rid of them that's what normally happens but the the unknown question is is how and why do these other individuals succumb to these different types of autoimmune conditions that produce these. And there's some theories. Um, Some of it is there's a genetic predisposition to some of these genes that um, don't recognize self and non-self very well. There's also these stress factors that get added. There's some environmental issues that people believe. There's some immune dysfunction in the gut, um, things like that, and these contribute to this mis, mis, um, directed, uh antibodies that attack different parts of the body.
0: But if, if you're if one of the models is that um, it's these you know subclinical uh, infections, mm-hmm. if that person you know is in that condition, let's say they have uh, autism, you know, as soon as that person takes broad spectrum antibiotics for any other illness, wouldn't that clear out these other infections or no? Um,
1: generally they don't because, uh, you know, these different organisms respond to different types of drugs. Uh, for instance, you might have some type of gram positive, they're not going to respond to gram negative, uh, antibiotic, or in, you have a viral infection that's certainly not going to respond to an antibiotic. You might have a parasite or maybe even Lyme, which is one of these triggers, Lyme disease. Uh, which uh, is difficult to diagnose, but it is also one that produces these types of symptoms based on the same type of autoantibody tax. So um, in general, you know, that people do get well and they improve, but again, it's this combination, and I do believe there's a genetic predisposition not to neuropsychiatric disorders, but to the self, non-self dysregulation, And typically, you can see in the family history, they might have some incidents of, let's say, psoriasis, asthma, maybe lupus, maybe MS, maybe Crohn's. And then you see these crop up um, in subsequent generations.
0: Well, I would bet that the the infections that are there that are latent, I mean, they're not responsive to normal everyday antibiotics. That's why these people would have long-term conditions, right?
1: It it's, it could be a portion of that. And certainly, like in the instance with Lyme, it's very difficult to eradicate. And in some people, um, you do have these chronic infections. Um, some people do have chronic strep infections. Um, but most of these uh, medications that, that are available, at least for these infections, um, once you identify what they are, because that's the other part is then knowing you've got to go look for them Um, they tend to be able to be over time eradicated, whether it's through IV therapy or different types of of administration or different types of of, um, compounds being used.
0: So what are the pathways in which people will, you know, people's doctors will request this test or tests that you offer? Uh If someone listening has these, these problems or knows someone that does, what do they do? They talk to their doctor, what do they say, and what's the pathway in which they get to you?
1: Yeah, typically because we don't even have a sales force. It's through uh, word of mouth, through education, through conferences, publications. Generally, we see that they probably have seen five to sometimes as many as 15 doctors before they ever know about us or hear about us. But normally, these patients in the beginning, they're children. Um, They will probably have gone to a pediatrician. Maybe they've had some obsessive-compulsive disorders or they can't focus in school, or they started bedwetting. Um, we do have patients, and many of these, uh, what I'll tell you, uh, have suicidal ideation, um, things that um, you might think of a mental disorder. And so then they will probably be referred to a pediatric or a psychiatrist or a neurologist, and then they may get referred to, To someone else and someone else. um, In some unfortunate cases, um, parents have been accused of abusing their kids um, because these kids aren't responding uh, to these different types of medications that normally they would think they would. Um, We've had the case where some uh, couple of mothers have asked to help expedite our test because they have a court date that they're going to take their kid away. Um, So, one of our um, one of our uh, top priorities is to reduce the turnaround time um, because being a complex panel of tests that used to take six to eight weeks to turn them around, we're down to about two to three weeks, and we're working on technology to get it down to below a week.
0: Wow. But again, what do people literally ask for? Do they, And what do they say? Oh, I've heard oh. of this company, Molecular, I want those tests? Or like, How would a doctor <laughs> even know?
1: Yeah, is. yeah, and typically they do. A lot of times the, either the physician will know about molecular labs, and it, we call it now the Cunningham Panel uh, because it's really named after my collaborating co-founder. Um, they will either ask for it or they might even indicate or they might think uh, that their patient has what's called PANDAS or PANS, which is the new nomenclature pediatric acute onset neuropsychiatric syndrome. And uh, the pan does on the S refers to strep, which uh, we find that, although strep is common, um, many times these patients don't have strep infection and they have some other infection. So they will say, maybe, my, my, would you consider whether my child has PANDAS or PANS? Or maybe they would consider um, uh, testing for these ant- what we call antineuronal antibodies in the Cunningham panel. A lot of physicians are stock the kits that we have now, as I mentioned we have over twelve hundred of them now, and so many of them are pretty pretty well versed at picking these kids out uh and so there's still a lot of education that needs to go on um because as you can tell it's pretty complex
0: yeah well that's that's you know, super important is there a um, how will people know if their doctor is is aware of what you have you know, besides asking or if they're looking for a new doctor, how will they know that they're on your uh, association roster? Do you have a list for yeah, yeah,
1: we have a website, uh, www.molecularalabs.com. Um, there's some very good, uh, probably about 30, 40 parent advocacy groups in the United States for um, pandas and pans, and one is called the Pandas Network. They're based out in California. Uh, They have a lot of different references, even clinicians and physicians that patients can go to. Um, Certainly on our website, we provide publications for physicians, for parents. We provide educational tools. We provide awareness. And many of these parent groups um, are working with the state legislature. And the first bill that got passed in Illinois to uh, mandate that insurance companies pay for coverage for PANDAS. And many of these states now have proclamations um, that have a PANDAS Awareness Day on October 9th. And so that's the medical model for the underlying type of autoimmune dysfunction that may be present in some cases of autism, some cases of ADD, some cases of Tourette's, even schizophrenia.
0: For um, Okay, so for kids, there's these resources, but you mentioned that I know it's not evaluated yet, but uh, what about for adults that have chronic fatigue or other problems, you know, chronic depression, are they able to request a molecular labs test and, you know, will the results be able to tell them anything or no?
1: Yeah, th- this is a, a relatively newer application that we're finding, um, and this is through adult physicians who are using the test and finding that this is the case in chronic fatigue and, and in chronic depression. Uh, again, not all of them, but when they're positive and they treat them with this same method, they see some really, really uh, remarkable results. Because it's a newer application of this test, there's not a lot of literature out there, and this is why we're working with them to um, finish clinical studies so that they can publish the data. Um, but it's it, it's one of those um, types of things where you have to find a physician who understands that and and is actually using our test certainly if there's questions people can call and ask um our uh, we have a phone line with help um and we certainly help people every day literally from all different countries um because this whole area is one area of medicine um that really hasn't changed a lot in the practice uh in, in decades
0: mm. okay Well, what's ahead for you guys for uh, the next six months or a year? Uh, New tests coming, new assays? Yeah, so uh,
1: in keeping with a little bit more of your other types of technologies, we have now over 7,600 patients that have clinical annotations, and uh, more than half of them have given us approval to consent to contact them, get their medical records, and we're working on algorithms uh, with machine learning to be able to identify and stratify these patient populations, combine that with treatment, treatment efficacy, and treatment improvement, um, to be able to go forward with the test results to provide uh, an algorithm that would predict treatment efficacy based on the patient's symptoms, the test results, because there are five different tests and they have different levels of positivity. And so our goal is then to provide some better therapeutic intervention guidance and help. The other is we're producing a pharmacoeconomic model. We've uh, surveyed over 2,000 patients that have spent um, a lot of money and a lot of time trying to find help, find doctors, find answers. And uh, to help, because we do bill insurance companies on their behalf, and about half the time we get some coverage, Uh, we get half coverage we would like to get that 100%. So we're working on some studies to demonstrate the cost savings of early testing and early intervention that would be financially beneficial to these insurance companies. And then the other is we're working with some therapeutic companies on um, helping them to maybe develop new drugs or reposition old drugs that would be effective in this patient population as well as us finding new targets, we have about three dozen other targets in the brain that we are using these specimens to do high throughput screening to see is there correlation with many of these other conditions um, that uh, we can create and expand either the existing panel or develop new panels that will help identify these same patients in different disorders.
0: Yeah, and I, I forgot to ask you what are the I don't know if you can say, but what are the markers that you test for? Yeah, you know, what is yes. the Cunningham hand panel comprised of?
1: Yeah, so there's five different targets, and we find that they tend to be, uh, at least one of them are positive in if a patient has these uh, an immune dysfunction that's related to an autoimmune condition. There are two dopamine receptors that we target, and we use these. It's dopamine um, D1 and dopamine D2, and these are uh, the pre- and postsynaptic receptors in the brain, that are involved with movement and other type of uh, neurologic disorders. So if an antibody is directed against one or more of those, um, they can interfere. Uh, they can either act as what we call agonist or antagonist. They can stimulate or they can block these receptors. The third target is uh, a um, a protein or a um, lipid called lysoganglicide, GM1. And it surrounds the sheath that's kind of like the myelin sheath around the nerves that in the case of what's called Guillain-Barré syndrome, uh, these antibodies also attack the myelin sheath and then interrupt uh, the ability of these patients to to function. Um, the the fourth target is, is tubulin, which is a general protein. that's an intracellular protein in all cells, but it's highly concentrated in the brain. It's also believed to be responsible for intercommunication between cells, certainly a scaffolding protein. And then the fifth one, which is um, a bit more complex, we use radioisotope P32 to be able to to detect this. Um, we actually incubate antibodies, the patient's antibodies, on a cell line. It's a brain cell line. Um, and we then pulse chase that with P32 to find out if those antibodies stimulate an enzyme called cam kinase two. And the reason that's important is because that enzyme in the brain cells upregulate three neurotransmitters, dopamine, epinephrine, and norepinephrine. So what happens is an antibody can stimulate the brain cell to produce more dopamine, epinephrine, and norepinephrine in which it's not needed. And this, this is also um, one of the the uh, issues that causing these different types of neuropsychiatric disorders. So those are the five targets wow. that we run.
0: Do you feel like, um, I don't know, does it make you feel like every unexplained condition could have an autoimmune basis to it?
1: <laughs> We've had some physicians who said everything is, is related to the immune system. Um, probably the answer is certainly no, but... We find that the immune system is related to so many different things um, and why a healthy immune system is so critical. For instance, uh, in HIV or AIDS, uh, which I I worked on back at Genentech back in the early 80s, um, that people don't really die per se from HIV they die because they contract these other infections that you and I get and exposed to every day that our body wards off and it doesn't do anything to us because the HIV virus attacks the immune system and and basically keeps it from um, performing its function. Uh, And Mm -hmm. if you look at, you know, there's over 80 different autoimmune conditions now that are known and exist. And if you look at that, really, even aging, uh, a healthy immune system is one of the strongest predictors uh, of long-term, long-term um, longevity and health. And uh, it is one of those things that, if you look at even in the gut, two-thirds of the immune system actually is involved in the gut. Therefore, you know it's clear that there's some interaction with the microbiome. There's some interaction with gut dysbiosis. In these conditions, you see that in autistic kids. Uh, and these other chronic conditions. So it, it's um, you know I would say the immune system plays a very critical role in many of these chronic disorders that seem to be uh, evade evade a lot of treatments.
0: Hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, the work you're doing is uh, it's really amazing and fantastic. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. And the best way for people to reach out is what? Go to com or are there other methods? Yes.
1: Yeah, molecularalabs.com. We have a whole bunch of resources there. uh, And certainly, uh, if there's anything they want to follow up with, they can just send us an email through our customer service line or sign up there to get updates. Uh, But, Richard, I appreciate you sharing with us your audience and uh, look forward to helping us what we say. We like to believe that we're going to
0: impact and change how medicine is practiced. Well, very good.